This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Monday. We um, we're behind on everything, right? I mean, we're we're we were supposed to start this recording 30 minutes ago. We're supposed to have this episode released today, much earlier than today. It's just, but life got in the way. It's been a long service week. And, yeah, uh, I think people ask us sometimes, like, how are we able to like do it all, fit it all in? And I mean, we're just, we're just, you know, sometimes getting by, like, just like everybody else. That's right. Right. <laughs> that's right. And you, you can notice that, like, sometimes we have trouble attending to our even like our household needs because Daphne's alarm for the her her fire alarm is still not fixed. But you said this week. No. Yeah, I I don't. I mean, I tried to fix it. I don't want people to think I just sit here with this alarm going off. It's, it's very I, I annoying. I don't know how you do it, by the way. It sounds yeah, awful. It's, it's actually infrequent enough that I almost forget it's not working, and then it goes yeah. off again. Yeah, <laughs> just, like oh, oh, right. It's still not working. And for the people who are going to say, "Why isn't Daphne going to get it fixed?" We're recording a lot of episodes in one sitting. So That's right. Um, <laughs> That's right. It's going to seem like I haven't fixed it all. For people who haven't week. watched TV since 1945, <laughs> we do record and then yeah, air Netflix stuff. style. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, Daphna. So you, you have uh, decided that we were going to review infectious disease today. Yeah, it's a big section. Um, it's pretty high yield. It's one of the biggest components. We did palm doing ID. We've got cardiology coming up, some big hitters, so people can get them up front. Mm -hmm. Okay, then. Well, this is, um, we're, we're as, as you all know, we are following the Neonatology Review uh, books from Dr. Broski and Martin, third edition. We are in volume three, and if you need even that much help, it's page 68. Uh, so this is where we are today. And the first thing we're going to talk about is sepsis. Um, so the first thing we need to talk about when we talk about sepsis is transmission, right? And I think that's sometimes one of the questions that parents ask us, how did my baby get this? Um, and I think um, there are obviously multitude of factors, but uh, let's talk about the ones that we think are the most common ones when we're talking about neonatal sepsis. So transplacental transmission is the first one, especially when it comes to viral infection. Um, and, and again, a bit less commonly for bacterial infection. We have uh, all sorts of ascending infections where, um, especially in the context of uh, rupture of membranes, where really any, any infectious agent could make its way up to the baby. Um, again, uh, along a similar line, um, amniotic uh, fluid exposure. Um, and um, I think that could be quite pertinent when it comes to any form of invasive procedure, especially as we are entering the era of fetal surgery. Um, and then finally, um, any form of um, postnatal exposure where um, the baby could catch something through breast milk uh, or through mastitis. So what are some of the risk factors for sepsis? I think, like many things, we're going to divide this into either maternal or neonatal risk factors. Maternal risk factors include um, the famous chorioamnionitis, uh, premature rupture of membrane, um, group B streptococcus colonization in the mother, 
uh, untreated urinary tract infection, maternal fever, um, malnutrition, sexually transmitted disease, and lower socioeconomic status. Um, I think, in my opinion, that premature rupture membrane, GBS status, UTI, chorio are probably your biggest one. Um, maternal fever, fever is quite tricky, um, but uh, should not be overlooked, especially as the field has moved from really identifying maternal fever as an automatic sign of infection to just being one of the components of maternal infection or maternal chorionitis. In terms of neonatal risk factors, prematurity, low birth weight are high risk factors for neonatal sepsis. Uh, the presence of indwelling catheters is another one. And obviously the presence of any other form of um, external device like an endotracheal tube increase your risk of sepsis. Now, the, the important distinction that we need to make when it comes to sepsis in neonatology is early versus late onset sepsis. And I think that the, the most um, important point about those is when do these occur? Early onset sepsis has been pretty much defined as something that happens within the first three days of life. Some people say within the first six days of life. Um, and so there's a bit of a debate as to if an infection happens on day four or five, is this considered early onset? Is this considered late onset? I think for the purposes of the test, you can assume that this will be overt, right? So they'll mention to you a either a two-day-old or a 15-day-old. And believe me, I have, I have no reason to suspect that somebody would draft a question and try to purposefully confuse you by saying, all right, this is a three day or this is a three day old three and a half three days old and two hours you know um so yeah and then late onset sepsis is defined as something that happens past 72 hours of age or seven days of life depending on uh which authority you follow up to 90 days of age so to about three months um i'm going to separate them so now that we've sort of Define the two, they have very specific characteristics. I'm gonna first talk about early onset sepsis. So early onset sepsis has an, has an incidence that ranges from about 0.03 to 0.2% of live births, live birth, which is quite low. However, as we've said before, prematurity is a risk factor. And Dr. Boskin Martin mentioned that the risk in preterm infants is actually seven times higher. The acquisition of early onset sepsis usually uh, is of uh, usually most commonly can happen from uh, the mother and most commonly through the maternal genital tract. The organisms that are the usual suspects are uh, highly tested and things that come back often. Number one being GBS could be streptococcus. Number two being E. coli, and then we have listeria, non-typable Haemophilus influenza, and Enterococcus. The clinical picture is that it could be quite severe and it could have a multi-system involvement with a greater risk of even seeing pulmonary involvement, right? With a greater risk, right? You have a greater risk of, of seeing pneumonia in early onset sepsis, which really has created this issue of us trying to figure out what is early onset sepsis, especially in the context of TTN. So when the baby does have a bit of respiratory distress at birth, could it be pneumonia? Could it just be RDS? How do we identify what's transitional versus early onset sepsis? Um, but that's that's one of the reasons. Um, and mortality is quite high. So early onset sepsis is not something to be um, to be taken lightly. The mortality rate is about 15 to 45%. So comparing that to late onset sepsis, um, 
I think this late onset sepsis is something that we see more commonly in preterm infants, 20% in very low birth weight infants, compared to about 2% in the uh, early onset sepsis when it comes to low birth weight infants. Um, it presents, as we said, after about a week of life, and the acquisition could be quite varied. Maybe from the maternal genital tract or postnatal environment. And I think that can then include so many different things, right? Your central catheters, the use of TPM, your ventilators, your um, all the things that babies are exposed to in the NICU. Um, the most common or organism are different than from early onset sepsis. They include staph. Um, they include staph and specifically uh, cons, like coag-negative staph. Then you have staph aureus with uh, MSSA being actually more common than MRSA, and we hope that this trend remains like that. Pseudomonas is another one. GBS, E. coli, and Listeria are still there. Now, the, the presentation of late-onset sepsis is less fulminant than early-onset, so it's usually slowly progressive. And, um, and usually uh, less likely to be multi-systemic, tend to be more like a focal involvement. Um, and the rates of mortality have been reported to be lower, um, 10 to 20% higher, obviously, if it's gram-negative organisms, um, which obviously, yeah, so 10 to 20% lower than the 45% that we saw in early onset sepsis. Um, the other thing that we need to talk about when it comes to late onset sepsis, obviously, is something that we cannot overlook, which is the potential for fungal infection, especially in babies with central venous catheters, so something to keep in mind. In terms of the clinical presentation, um, I think really anything, and as we know, anything really could be sepsis. Uh, the symptoms are varied. They include numerous things like respiratory distress, lethargy, decreased uh, peripheral perfusion, possible shock, fever, hypothermia, apnea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal distension, um, cyanosis, hypotonia, feeding intolerance, seizures, uh, persistent unexplained jaundice, hypoglycemia, petechiae. Um, the, the, the symptoms are, are quite varied. The evaluation of sepsis should include um, probably a, a CBC, probably follow-up of uh, glycemia, and then really trying to send for culture. So gram stain and culture of the blood, of the urine, um, of the CSF, and even maybe of the airway or the tracheal culture if the baby is intubated. The CSF protein glucose, CSF red blood cell count, and the CSF red blood cell count are usually also ordered. Um, radiographs in preterm infants are really helpful, especially when it, uh, when it involves uh, evaluating sepsis in the context of necrotizing enterocolitis. You can look at the um, immature cells, so the total neutrophil ratio may be helpful, especially if this, um, is it I to E or I to T ratio? I always forget. I to T. I to T. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, and that could be a, uh, that can be something useful in the context of early onset sepsis. Um, you could use um, inflammatory markers. I think that uh, procalcitonin is one that is now uh, quite uh, used. CRP is obviously another one that is still very much used around the, the country and around the world. Um, and then they mention other uh, sepsis markers like Erythrocyte sedimentation rate. I'm, I missed that one up. I'm sorry. Fibrinogen, fibronectin, and haptoglobulin. Um, I think I think it's very difficult to make a decision on sepsis based on single of these inflammatory markers. I think the the picture has to be a bit more clear. Um, but yeah, 
In terms of the management, I think um, there's been, we've, we've talked about this with Dr. Popolo. Um, I think the approach to early onset sepsis has dramatically changed over the years. And I think um, the approach has really been to uh, use maybe uh, risk stratification. So in the case of uh, early onset sepsis, the uh, early onset sepsis risk calculator is a tool that can be used to assess the, the likelihood of sepsis based on the clinical presentation of the infant. Um, and that can determine uh, approaches. Otherwise, broad spectrum uh, empiric antibiotic is usually the treatment of choice, especially before culture results are available. Um, symptomatic support when it comes to respiratory support, hemodynamics, glucose platelets, all that stuff uh, uh, is uh, a no-brainer. And obviously something to consider, which is in a baby that potentially is treated or baby that is starting to be treated, always never forget about potentially viral infection, fungal infection, and potentially metabolic disorders. So that's sepsis, and the beep is just right there on cue to, for me to hand off. <laughs> for, to... My, for my turn. I'll talk loudly. But, you know, I think in terms of the broad strokes, like I think you did a good job. Like They're not going to test us on the markers because there's still so much debate in the community about them, in the literature about them. But I think this box on page 68, very valuable. Um, you should know the highest risk organisms in which time period this that uh, greater risk of pneumonia and early onset greater risk of meningitis and late onset um i think those are very high yield pearls for sure okay uh pneumonia so um we did review pneumonia a little bit in the pulmonary section um but we are really going to talk about kind of like ventilator associated pneumonias and um, the true incidence of which is unknown, uh, likely between 5 to 15 percent. And it can be challenging diagnosis in infants because, uh, in particular preterm infants, because um, they, they are unlikely to demonstrate fever like we see in children and adults uh, because most of them are in isolates that are thermoregulated. So their temp goes up, the, the isolate temp goes down. Um, so sometimes uh, fever is lacking. Um, radiographic changes may be complicated by, you know, chronic lung disease of prematurity, respiratory distress syndrome, uh, surfactant deficiency, um, uh, pulmonary edema. Lots of things can make identifying uh, pneumonias on chest x-rays more difficult than they are in older populations. Um, Typically, the neonate uh, may have discolored or thickened pulmonary secretions. I think we get a lot of information from our bedside nurses about type, uh, consistency, um, and um, amount of secretions. They often need increased ventilator support, particularly in oxygen. Um, and they may or may not have the radiographic changes, like I said. And um, the organism can be identified by trach culture. There's a whole host of causative um, agents, uh, Staph aureus, uh, probably the most common, Enterobacters like Klebsiella, E. coli, Proteus, Enterobacter, Serratia, and Citrobacter. Pseudomonas, also very um, common uh, pneumonia uh, for uh, infants on ventilatory support. Streptococcus, Haemophilus, and Acinetobacter. Um, so there are some definitions here about defining ventilator-associated pneumonia. So we can call it possible if you have 
either a gram stain confirming bacterial presence in pulmonary secretions or a pathogenic bacterial growth by trait culture. A probable ventilator-associated assist- pneumonia is when you have both gram stain confirming bacterial presence in pulmonary secretions and pathogenic bacterial growth by trait culture. Yeah, I think I think VAP is is a is a landmine. I think I think yeah. no one really there's like such debate about how to diagnose uh, ventilator-associated right. pneumonia. I doubt that questions could be clearly drafted on this topic. I yeah, think, I agree. I think they could. And the truth is, it's like. Any bacteria can be in these, especially these preemies or yeah. chronically ventilated babies. Yeah, so my, I, I agree with you. My rule of thumb for VAP is that if you have some form of blood disturbance, like you have leukocytosis and then you have a positive culture and you must have uh, a baby obviously on the ventilator, but also you must have like some uh, change in pulmonary function or chest x-ray findings, yeah. um, which when you have to have all these things, it's kind of hard to make a question and try to be discerning sure. of what to ask. However, the prevention measures for VAP, that yeah. is ripe for questioning on, the, on an totally exam. Totally agree. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, to your point, that's why infections in babies are so hard, right? Because what you described can be seen in Everything. any infection. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not even, even if it's not a pneumonia, sometimes they get just respiratory decompensation and it's not even pneumonia. And, and even if you're confident it is, how many times you're like, I think oh, it's yeah. VAP and I'm going to rule this kid out for sepsis anyway. Because yeah. I'm not gonna <laughs> miss to. I'm not yeah. gonna miss bacteremia, right? And, and so on. Yeah. For sure, for sure. But yeah, um, let's uh, get to the interventions to prevent VAP. So uh, obviously, use non-invasive ventilation if possible. Absolutely. But we know that even babies on non-invasive support can get uh, pneumonias, especially because there's you know still water and uh, plastic. Um, exposed to the baby. Decrease the length of mechanical ventilation. And then some other options of which there are limited supportive data include um, assessing extubation readiness daily, obviously, because this hopefully gets babies off of um, mechanical ventilation sooner. Limit sedation when possible. Uh, Just like in adults, this inhibits the cough reflex and uh, movement uh, that might disturb you know, sludging kind of in the lungs that that would propagate growth. Um, provide oral care, decrease breaks in the ventilator circuit, and a closed or inline suctioning. So all of these are opportunities to help present, prevent ventilator-associated pneumonia. But of course, using non-invasive support um, is is the key yeah. and weaning babies as quickly as tolerated. And so for the people who are like, what is closed inline suctioning? Because it mm. sounds like like something your plumber would take care of well. Um, well, it kind of is. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're kind of, I think most units are still are already doing it, which is basically having like these ballards, as they are called, mm-hmm. where basically your mm-hmm. catheter for suctioning the ET tube is already pre-connected to the piece that is at the tip of the ET tube. And what that means is that you're no longer breaking open the circuit to actually th- thread in a catheter to suction as it was done back in the day. And it's, you almost think about it as like a central line eclampsia reduction, where mm-hmm. the more you have to break into the system of the, of the vent, the more likely you are to introduce a bug. Um, so that's, that's, what it, that's what it refers to. Because I'm sure somebody would be like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the, th- yeah, that's the thing that we're... <laughs> mm-hmm. The thing where you got to get through the plastic. The plastic, the fucking plastic. Speak of the plastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, get stuck, and you're uh-huh. like, we got a suction. We yeah. got a and then suction. the catheter gets stuck inside the tube, and you're like, oh, that's God, right. oh, God, oh, God. <laughs> Oh, gosh. All right. 
Should we be doing a question? I wanted to uh, remind you, Daphna. You forgot about the question. <laughs> I, you forgot about the question. Yeah. I remember this. This happened question. while Let's nothing was question. being recorded. Nobody will know. <laughs> that was very sneaky. Very smooth yeah. of me. I have a question for you. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, this is infectious disease and immunology question 11. An obstetrician asks a neonatology fellow to evaluate an asymptomatic term infant's risk for early onset sepsis. The infant's mother is group B uh, streptococcus positive. She received an adequate intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis and did not have a fever. She did not have any other infectious risk factors during labor. The neonatology fellow determines that this infant does not require additional screening. You're like... Can I use the calculator? I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm like, please let let it be that this uh, this question was drafted not not like t- twelve years ago. But you know, if they really want to make a clinically relevant test, they should do this and let you use the calculator, or, right? Or show you the outcome of the calculator and be like, what That's what right. you gonna do? What do you do? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, which of the following statements about neonatal sepsis is false? A, group B streptococcus and uh, E. coli are the two most common pathogens associated with early onset sepsis. B, group B streptococcus is a more frequent cause of early onset sepsis in preterm infants because of unknown maternal group B streptococcus status. Uh. C, group B streptococcus type 3 serotype is typically associated with late onset sepsis. D, the risk of early onset sepsis is tenfold higher in very low birth weight infants compared to term infants, or E, all of the above statements are true. Oh, snap. Okay. This is one of those questions that you're like, well, I think we're going to all be right. Yeah, I think, so I think, I think, um, I don't have the question in front of me. Um, this is the mm-hmm. level of production that we have people around here. Um, <laughs> but... If I remember correctly, the first choice um, said that GBS and E. coli are the most common. I think that is true. Yeah, but okay. we're looking for the false statement, right? That's right. Then, then, then you then choice B was like a statement that for the first seventy five percent of it was completely true, and then they added a, a twist at the end. And I'm like, I don't know if that last part of the statement is true. Um, yeah. So can can you read that statement again? Yeah, the statement was group B streptococcus is a more frequent cause of early onset sepsis in preterm infants because of unknown maternal group B streptococcus status. I guess with the thought that if you don't know what the status is, that yeah, that, I mean, but you I'm like, might miss it. But I'm like, like because of unknown status, it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know what they mean by that. Do they mean that because we don't know what uh, mothers who are delivering, what their GBS status is, when in truth, like, we're screening everybody if we can. So that seems like it would be wrong. I think that's the point. The, the baby delivered precipitously. We didn't have time to get the GBS status. Yeah, that sounds, I mean, that statement to me sounds wrong. And then the next one is that about the serotype 3, which, by the way, we're going to get into this. Serotype 3 is something yeah. you should know. It is the most likely one that I remember from from my boards. Very and then the fourth one sounded like it was true, too. So I'm going to go with B. Okay, you're correct. Uh, B is false, the very confusing answer. But what is true is that early onset sepsis is a neonatal infection occurring less than or equal to 72 hours of age. The incidence of early onset sepsis is approximately 1 per 1,000 live births. The risk in very low birth weight infants is approximately tenfold higher compared to term infants, much, much higher. Group B streptococcus and E. coli are the two most common pathogens associated with early onset sepsis. I actually have um, in my notes here, I have GBS number one, 43%, E. coli uh, close to 30%. 
Mm. Um, and E. coli is seen most co more commonly in preterm infants. While group B streptococcus remains uh, the most common pathogen in term infants, E. coli has become the most common bacteria causing early onset sepsis in very low birth weight infants. There are multiple group B streptococcus serotypes with type 3, most often associated with late onset sepsis. Okay. All right, buddy. Okay. I'll see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.